On this episode of the Aka Education Podcast, Justin speaks with the phenomenally talented John Smith of the Swingles. John offers advice on how to build confidence as a soloist and how to find meaningful connections in the music we perform. Let's get ready. It's time for some Aka Education. It's the Aka Education Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Justin Glodish from the Aka Education Podcast on episode 24. Here I have with me today is John Smith, Long Island born and now currently singing with the Swingles out in England. John, welcome to the Aka Education Podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, John, your career has really just been amazing. I've kind of followed it. I have a quick story. Um, I actually met you. You may not realize this. I met you when you were in college. You actually came to um, my my county and you sang in an acapella festival with your group from Delaware. And uh, I, I remember watching you on stage. I'm like, this kid is special. And then, you know, a couple of years down the road, I met you in Rochester at a, at a winter conference and, you know, you were working with, um, I believe, um, who was it in Rochester? You were working on audio production and engineering and, uh, you were getting your feet wet there. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, here you are with the swingles. So just watching, <laughs> just watching every step of the way, it's, it's really cool to say, I saw John when he was like really getting his chops going with uh, his vocal point in Delaware. So it's yeah. great to see you singing with the Swingles, man. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's been quite a journey, um, but yeah, it's it's really exciting. Well, talking about the journey, like how did you actually get started and involved with acapella? Sure. Um, well, my it was kind of like a perfect storm of like a couple of different things. Um, my choir teacher actually introduced me to the Swingle Singers. Nice. <laughs> um, I was also on LimeWire at the time and happened to stumble upon this group called Rockapella mm-hmm. um, and their Folger commercial. Um, and also my jazz teacher introduced me to the New York Voices. So it was kind of just a combination of all of this hitting me at the same time. And I was like, what is this? I love it. Right. Um, so as a freshman, I actually just started my own acapella group, which all of the juniors and seniors in my high school like hated me for that. They're like, who's this kid think he is? Um, and yeah, I mean, I was a super nerd on Friday nights, like trying to transcribe New York Voices arrangements. It's basically how I taught myself how to arrange. Um, but yeah, I kind of just I kind of just hit the ground running, figuring out how to do it. Um, and then obviously, you know, met some cool people along the way that taught me some stuff. And yeah, I went to UD and was in vocal point there. Um, and then after that, I joined Hyena Sound. Mm-hmm. And yeah, now I'm in the Swingles. It's phenomenal. And you actually do arranging for the Swingles too, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. So we actually, we all do. Um, so all of our charts are either written by former members or or current members. I think the only 
person that at the moment that we have a, a chart from someone outside is, is Tom Anderson, which okay. he's awesome. Tom is pretty, Tom is amazing too. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just, just looking through your bio here, you know, you've toured with Kurt Elling, the New York voices, the real group, you know, you've been in films like Mary Poppins returns, jingle jangle, even the new wonder woman movie. And that, that cinematic classic that I believe started this whole pandemic cats. So, I mean, your voice has been involved in, um, in all of these movies, which is just, is just phenomenal. And, you know, you say that you started as a freshman in high school in, in terms of starting your own group. So like right then and there, you know, say 15 years old, already having that drive and ambition to, to, to be where you are today. And, you know, and it shows because your arrangements, I've, I've heard your arrangements in different college groups, you know, being performed and just the way that you've gone about teaching, um, younger, um, a younger generation on how to, how to perform, how to arrange, just you, you have it all. And um, I want to kind of pick your brain about all those things today, just to give us educators out there um, some insight on how to maybe approach it as well with our own students. So in terms of arranging, um, what is your process? How do you deal with um, getting, you know, songs transcribed and, and to fit within your own personal voice? Sure. Um, I think it's sort of my approach to music in general is, is all about this. Um, but arranging specifically, it's all about, you know, delivering a, a compelling story um, and knowing, you know, actually what you're saying. That's kind of where I start first. I always want to let the lyrics guide my choices um, as an arranger. So, you know, if you analyze one of my arrangements, even some of the background parts, you might not hear it on a first listen, but you'll even see that the background parts are meaningful in terms of what they're actually doing in relation to, to the lyric. Um, and that's sort of how I've always been with music is always, it's always about telling a story. Otherwise, you know, what's the point of the lyrics? You know, mm -hmm. we, we as singers have that advantage but also an added challenge that we do have lyrics um and we have to you know get a point across uh using those lyrics so i'd say that's my my biggest you know pros big biggest uh sort of part of my process when it comes to arranging um but yeah, i do always tell my arranging students to get really good at transcribing because it's just such a handy tool in terms of, I mean, I always write out the whole solo line for first before doing anything else, you know, mm -hmm. you can always change the structure and sort of change things later on. Um, but I find it so much easier when you start with something on the page. So I right. arrange directly into Sibelius most of the time. Sometimes I do some studio arrangements, but most of the time I'm writing into Sibelius and there's nothing more you know, there's nothing scarier than kind of opening Sibelius and just staring at a blank sheet of music and knowing that you have to fill it up. Um, right. So why not give yourself an advantage by just putting the whole solo line there first, because then you have something to go off of constantly. And um, you talk about telling the story and, you know, we as musicians are storytellers, regardless if we're just right. playing an instrument, you know, the instruments tell the story, our voices tell that story. And like you said, that added challenge of trying to make those lyrics come to life and really engage with the audience. And one of the things that I know that you do in terms of uh, when you present clinics and you work with um, students and do workshops is talking about, you know, singing 
singing with swagger and really kind of bringing forward those words. So can you kind of give a little insight on how we can sing with swagger? Sure. Um, well, I mean, the first thing I would say is it's, you know, it's always, the first thing is about preparation, right? Mm-hmm. Preparation will breed confidence, which confidence is swagger, right? Um, so making sure you've really thought about the story you're telling and not just this is a happy song, this is a sad song, but actually digging into the layers of of this story and are there any double meetings or hidden meetings throughout this. And it doesn't necessarily have to be what the original artist intended, as long as you're making a deliberate choice that you can connect to honestly. Um, And, you know, on the flip side, sometimes (laughs) I hear high school groups singing about a subject that you know, there's no way that, you know, some of these, some of these younger students can actually know what that's like. But, you know, that's when you sort of put yourself in someone else's shoes and do a bit more research behind that. Maybe ask someone else that has been in this situation. Sometimes we don't have a choice as a soloist what we're singing, right? So if we can't necessarily connect to that, then we have to do that extra research and find someone that has or, or find a part of our past or some part of our emotions that can connect with that. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 for me, it's all about, you know, preparation and, and, and the story. And I've seen so many performers, you know, a, a lot of them in, in, in acapella and vocal groups kind of either they're caring so much about the riffs or singing it exactly the way the original artist intended. Or sometimes I see a group, you know, smiling throughout a whole song that I'm like, oh, if they just wrote down these lyrics and actually read them without the music, they would totally Mm. see that this is not a happy song and they shouldn't (laughs) necessarily be smiling. And that's sort of the, the, the trouble of pop music sometimes is that, you know, to get everyone to, to listen and dance, you kind of have to put this four on the floor beat to it, but Mm. actually just because the original artist did that way, it doesn't mean you can't serve the lyrics in a more, genuine and authentic way. No, I agree. And you you bring up high school students, you know, singing about situations they're not even familiar with. I mean, I teach middle school and middle school students and it's the same thing, you know, there's there's um songs about relationships or just, you know, even even a lot of the pop music out there today refers to, you know, alcohol and drug use and, you know, right. and like you you're trying to find ways to um, I mean, at least for me, it's trying to find ways to maybe even change the lyrics or alter the lyrics to make it up more appropriate for mm. uh, my students. And when you say, you know, you have to put that beat in order to like make it popular, you put that four on the floor beat behind it. You know, there's a lot of songs out there that when you do listen to that lyrical context, I think of um, dancing on my own, you know, um, yeah. you know, with, with Robin, Robin's got that nice, just beat going with it. But when you start listening to the lyrics, all of a sudden you understand why, you know, Callum Scott made that shift when he sang, you know, sang it on Britain's Got Talent or you listen to, you know, Pentatonix do their arrangement. It's just, it's mm. really sad and the, pressing when you think about it so you bring up a great point how pop music kind of is really just kind of pushing pushing the beat to try and get people to listen to it more and Mm. maybe less on emotion the other thing is that you know in pop music everything is so compressed right like Mm -hmm. we don't normally have this sort of the grandeur that we might have in uh 
you know, orchestras or some sort of cinematic uh, composition. Um, and I think a lot of times that translates to what people end up arranging is that things are very compressed in terms of, you know, the peaks and valleys because that's sort of all the music they're digesting is that pop music that there's not really necessarily um, a huge contrast between, you know, the vulnerable moments and, and the more epic moments. Uh, and I'd say in terms of arranging and in terms of uh, solo singing is actually to sort of plot that out. You know, you learn in English class to do these, those story plots, right? And there's right. the rising action and there's a climax and all of that stuff. And that I actually do, especially actually when I go masterclass groups, um, especially for ICCA sets, right? Like, or long competition sets that are 12 minutes of music. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's all loud <laughs> for 12 minutes. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, once you do something too many times, it loses its power. So in terms of solo preparation and arranging and performing in general, you know, plot out your climax first. And then nothing else can be that big and nothing else can be that intense. Right. So that it makes it that much more powerful when you finally do get to that moment. Um, and the same thing with your most vulnerable moment. Nothing else can then be as vulnerable um, in order to make it so so powerful. Um, so yeah. yeah, just just prepping in that in that way as well. And so many people think it's almost a musical, but actually it it gives you so much more choice as as a musician to, and it gives you the ability to tell that story in a in a more kind of dynamic way. Absolutely. And, you know, I teach, I teach general music too. And one of the things that we kind of talk about, especially with today's popular music is this idea of the hit factory, how everything is, has become formulaic. You know, mm -hmm. it follows the same structure regardless of what you input. So um, you as an arranger or anybody as an arranger really has that opportunity to make that shift, to really make it um, more appealing or, you know, make it just make it your own. So um, I like the idea of, you know, plotting things out and it, it, it sounds like more work, but it's, it's worth it in the end. You know, Definitely. you watch, you listen to some of these top arrangements that come out every year, you know, whether they're by you or any of those, uh, any other, other top arrangers that are out there, like Rob Dietz, um, even Ben Bram, you know, just the things that come out of um, their, their stories that they're telling within their music. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier, the background voices are just as important and, um, you know, and I think at least for younger students, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to convince my own middle school students that, you know, even though you are background voices, you're just as important because your story is being told as well. So how do right. you approach, how do you approach teaching, you know, background voices in terms of, you know, making sure that they understand their importance as well? Sure. Um, well, the first thing is, you know, have everyone actually learn the lyrics um, and you can do that a number of ways. You can do it in, you know, all reading it together or having them all actually learn the solo so that each of them can audition. Um, but as long as they all actually have learned the lyrics, you know, then there's no excuse, right? Like they all know what the story is about. So they're always able to sort of reflect back, you know, maybe I have a do-do-do-do section here, but I know exactly what's going on in the lyric. Right. And I have to basically <laughs> say those lyrics in my musicality and in my delivery 
while singing do 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 <laughs> right <laughs> um but yeah i think i think it's important for for everyone to to know the lyrics and, and to be able to connect that way absolutely um now you have been singing with the swingles for for how many years now like about five coming up on five yes five years that's amazing and um you know i mean the swingles have been around for for quite some time and mm -hmm. you know there's been changes in in personnel over the course of the years but um what is it like to be part of such a rich tradition of vocalists and i mean right now i believe you're the only um american in the swingles yeah. but um what is what is it like to be a part of that tradition it's really it's really amazing and it's you know it's something like i've never experienced before i i remember when i first joined and they hadn't had a lineup change in quite some time. Um, and because of that, they took a really long time to, <laughs> to decide. <laughs> My audition was about 10 months long. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it was quite intimidating at first, um, obviously coming into something that, you know, you don't want to break it or, <laughs> or mess it right. up, right? And you have a bit of imposter syndrome. You're like, how did I actually get here? But um, I think the coolest thing was when I started, because my first tour with the group was an American tour, which was super mm -hmm. cool because I basically got to say goodbye to all my friends around the country before I moved. Right. Um, but the coolest thing I saw was that, you know, in a lot of groups um, that I've been in, and I've, you know, I had a younger me was was guilty of this as well, is that when new people come in, you're basically trying to get them to form to your sound, right? And to, to mm -hmm. blend, blend to what's already existing. But the exciting thing about the Swingles is that as much as I was, you know, trying to, to blend into their sound, they, I was noticing that they were actually changing a lot of things to also blend to my sound. Um, and that's been really cool. Um, actually, I mentioned him already, but Tom Anderson saw us last, uh, in 2019. He was like, wow, this is, it still has that s s signature swingle sound, but it is actually mm -hmm. such a different sound to just a couple of years ago. And that's because three, uh, three new people were in it since the last time he's heard us. And, um, it's because, you know, rather than trying to make someone, do exactly what the person did before mm -hmm. actually the whole group has has been able to morph to that person so that that person can shine in the way that they in the way that they shine right you're not trying to re replace someone exactly the way you know their predecessor was you sort of get to evolve as a whole group and i think that's super cool and um uh i remember Angela Ugolini once called the Swingles the, the Darwin of, uh, of acapella and that we continually evolve. And, you know, it's so true. If you listen to the group, you know, from the 60s and you sort of listen every 10 years, you'll hear a significant difference in the sound. It'll still mm -hmm. be that signature Swingle sound. We'll always be able to do a Bach fugue and, and sound like the original group. But then you'll see the sort of differences in rep and the differences in, you know, even in something like an original song like Narnia that we've done. Mm -hmm. um, we do it differently now than we did it when I first joined the group. And that's because there's just different voices singing the chart. Right. Um, 
I think that's the coolest thing about it is that although there's such a rich tradition, you know, you don't just do tradition for tradition's sake. And I think right. a lot of um, musicians get stuck in this. Well, this is the way we've always done it. So this is the way it needs to be. When, you know, someone like Joe Goldsmith Eatson, who's been in the group for 14 years now, I think almost 15 years, you know, she has never said, this is the way it needs to be because this is the way we've done it. You know, she'll mm -hmm. guide us and say, you know, well, this is the way we've done it before, but you know, that's not necessarily the way that works for this lineup. So let's figure out what works for us. That's awesome. And I love that line you just said, and I'm going to use it as a don't just do tradition for tradition's sake. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a great way to look at it because I mean, in terms of longevity, you know, evolution, the, the, the evolving, ever evolving, you know, sound is, is important to that longevity. Definitely. And like you said, you know, you're talking about a group that has been together since the sixties and, you know, we're, we're here. Um, and you know, the, the sound has changed and, you know, not for nothing, you know, your last album, Folklore, love that album. And I want to talk to you about like the whole idea, the concept, the process of creating that album. But, you know, there's one song on there that like I dig and you may remember from a couple of years ago, I had, I was videotaping my son who was, you know, oh, two yeah. or three at the time <laughs> dancing um, uh, to Buchimis. And it was just, he was so enthralled and he was only, you know, two years old at the time, just getting into it. But just every song on that album really like there's so many different things going on and, and again it's it's about not sticking to you know one type of sound but uh can you talk about the the process of, of creating folklore and uh just how what that experience was like yeah definitely well the cool thing about it was that um and also the intimidating thing about it was basically I joined and they're like oh yeah we're doing this album it's folk music from around the world <laughs> Do you have any ideas? And I was like, um, on my first day, I was like, ah. Um, but basically it came about because, you know, every time we go somewhere, we try to, if we can, um, you know, incorporate a song that everyone from that region loves. Um, and we sort of picked some things up along the way from, you know, on our travels. And we realized that we had the makings of what could be, you know, uh, a world folk album. And um, they asked me if I knew anything American. And I was like, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I had done a couple of settings of hard times come again, no more. Um, but I really wanted to, you know, sort of take a shot at, at doing my own setting of it. And that was my first arrangement for the swingles, which was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it, it was an interesting process because we also didn't want to, um, sort of do anything inauthentically, right? So there mm -hmm. were some things that we were listening to and trying to complete the, the final tracks of the album and find some more material. You know, we'd listen to something and we realized, okay, well, we can't actually do that technique of singing because that you know, very much comes from that corner of the world. Mm -hmm. um, but what we can do is, you know, sort of take elements of it and incorporate that in. And I think... Um, that was one of the th cool things for me about that album is that we were still authentically the swingles as well as, you know, paying respect to these rich musical traditions from, from around the world. We weren't trying to copy anything. We were just trying to sort of, 
um, respectfully show our love for all of these, all of these different things. And it's quite cool when you go to another country, you know, we, um, you know, especially in Asia, um, when there's a huge language barrier and, you know, they're really enjoying the concert and they're clapping throughout. And then you sort of sing an encore, which they don't know is we've paired this song that, you know, is, is universally loved in the country. And all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, like so exciting. And, and they see it as, you know, this amazing, you know, sort of thank you from us. But um, yeah, it's, it, it is really cool. Uh, some things that we found in doing that album is that across all cultures, you sort of have music about the same things, the same themes pop up. There's love, there's death, there's birth, there's hope, uh, there's mourning, you know, and all of these things, no matter what language it's in, all of these mm -hmm. things ring true uh, around the world and are expressed through music. And I thought that was one of the most beautiful things that we really uh, came to learn in doing this album. That's awesome. And uh, so I have to ask, you know, off of that album, you know, what is your favorite song to perform off of that album? Oh if, man. If um, I probably, uh, hard times come again, no more really. Yeah. Um, I think I just have a really special place in my heart for it. It being the first swingles arrangement I've done. Mm -hmm. And it was a text that, you know, I'd really loved for, for a long time. Um, and I'd say my second favorite would be Puchimus. Yes. Definitely. Uh, I mean, I, I, I still love that one. And I'll play it once in a while for my kids and my son will start dancing. Now my daughter's like into it too. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, they just, they, they love it. And um, so, yeah, I thank you for, you know, giving that gift of music and, and really making, I'm thanking you for making my kids enjoy music when I should be the one that should be <laughs> getting to enjoy music, you know? Um, so uh, my question, I, I just kind of gave you the question about the one album, but you know, in all of the arrangements that you've done personally, is there one that specifically stands out? Maybe it's, maybe it's this one, um, your first swingles arrangement, but is there one that truly stands out as being your favorite or maybe even one that was like the most difficult to really put together? Hmm. Um, <laughs> I think in terms of my favorites, uh, probably has to be uh, Tokyo Sunrise that I did for the Swingles. Um, mm. it's, a, it's a song originally by LP, and uh, Michael Brizentine showed it to me, I think in like 2017, and I, as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I need to find a way for the Swingles to do this. And it took me probably the better part of a year, probably almost a year actually to arrange. Um, but that was because I, I really didn't know how we could actually do it. Um, I was trying to write it in so many different ways and giving different people the solos and I couldn't really figure out the best way to do it. And then uh, Federica joined and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is it. Like now we can do it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um and yeah it was actually the first song that I wrote with live looping which which mm -hmm. we do as well which Joe helped me with and um yeah I think it's just a really special one and it's it's usually a, a crowd favorite as well so 
And I, I love that you, you just mentioned it said, you said it took you like the better part of a year, you know, and I think that's important for a lot of us to hear in terms of arranging that, you know, if, if you're not getting where you want it to be after like a couple months or whatever, you know, don't give up on it. Like it will come, you know what I mean? So um, that that's amazing to me that, you know, you took this arrangement over the course of a year and then you said it it took a new member to, to join the group. And then again, we're talking about that constant evolution. You said that was kind of the boom, here it goes. And I've, I've actually seen that video and like the song is really good. Like (laughs) you, you've done a, amazing job with it oh, thanks man and uh yeah so um great choice great choice john um <laughs> <laughs> so um i have one last question for you and this is really for um us teachers you know trying to build confidence in a in a year that is kind of a struggle to mm. to build that confidence you know um because many of us are are teaching uh, the way you and i are talking you know on a computer or um, when we are in person, it's very difficult to have um, us the, to have the ability to sing in person. So um, what are some suggestions that you would have for us educators to really push forward to our students to help build their confidence um, in a year where it, it really seems like it would be a struggle? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I, you know, I am, I don't envy teachers this year. Um, but, you know, I've, done my fair share of doing workshops and masterclasses, but, you know, having to teach every day, it's, you know, I'm so grateful for, for all the teachers that have been uh, trucking along and, and rolling with the punches this year. Um, but I have to say one is, you know, find content that actually really inspires them and that, that, that they're excited about, um, you know, sometimes we think, oh, okay, well, this is really popular on the radio. So this must be something they want to sing. Mm-hmm. And while it might be fun for them, you know, is it something they can really connect with? And if there's something, if there's not something they can connect with, why not, you know, actually experiment with writing something, you know, it doesn't even yeah. have to be a full song, but asking them to experiment with writing lyrics you know, I think the biggest thing right now is, is the environment. I know mm-hmm. there's tons of, of students that are really quite concerned about it and concerned about the fact that their voices aren't being heard. Um, mm-hmm. So find those subjects that, you know, they feel like they're not being heard and get them to sing about that um, because there's nothing more, you know, exciting than getting to sing something that you're actually passionate about and that you can actually relate to. I remember, you know, being a student myself and, you know, while I did love lots of classical music, there were some that I was like, why do we have to sing this? You know, I can't, I can't relate to this at all. Um, And obviously there were other educational reasons why we would have to sing those things. But I'd say if you're specifically looking to, to, you know, build confidence and, and inspire them as, you know, find the subject matters that really, really matter to them. Um, it really does come down to repertoire choice first and foremost, um, something they can really connect with and, and get excited about. And if the song's not there, then experiment with, you know, writing something. There's, and if, you, if you're a teacher that's never 
done original songwriting. There's a lot of people out there um, that you can bring in for, for workshops. I know Ed in the Swingles does a really great songwriting workshop. Um, and it starts off with just, you know, really simple subjects writing about, you know, you don't, you don't have to get totally in depth right away. Um, but yeah, I think it comes down to repertoire choice and something they can really get excited about. I like that, you know, and I, I've been a culprit of it too. Um, at, at times is where I pick repertoire that I, I enjoy, right, <laughs> you know, exactly. and I'm sure there's many educators out there who pick repertoire that they enjoy as opposed to really um, giving their, their students ownership of what it is that they're singing. Yeah. So um, yeah, no, that's, that's a great idea. And the, the, the concept of, of original um, original songwriting that that's really, I mean, it's a cross curricular thing too. You're throwing, mm -hmm. it is, you know, you're yeah. throwing ELA in there for them and it, it really kind of expands their thought process. And I think, you know, in a year where you, I think we're allowed to experiment a little bit with curriculum because, you know, there's a lot of things that we can't do um, to really give them that opportunity to take ownership is, is just a great idea. So Definitely. John, drop in knowledge this, this week. I love it. <laughs> and to be honest, I do know that there are obviously other pieces of repertoire that you're going to have to, you know, do that they might not necessarily understand right away why they're doing it. But, mm -hmm. you know, let's say you do pick it around the environment, then find the, the more classical pieces that you have to program, you know, find those that relate to the environment, relate to the overall theme, um, that way they then understand why they're doing it. Um, right. That might inspire them as well. No, I agree. And I, you know, not for nothing, I, when I teach general music, like currently we're talking about, you know, blues history and talking about, you know, where blues came from. And then, you know, eventually they're going to find out that a lot of the music they listen to today, there is still a chain of, you know, connections that lead back to this, this basic idea of what blues music was and where, where it came from and what it is. So yep. there's connections all around. Um, John Smith, dude, it has been uh, awesome catching up, first of all, because, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a while since you and I have talked, but uh, thank you for sharing, you know, expertise and knowledge this week on the Aki Education Podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, you all can check out John on uh, his website, you know, with the swingles and then johnjsmithmusic.com. You can check him out there. Uh, we'll be right back. Another week, another Instagram contest, three more winners. Congratulations to JD, Bruce, and Steven for guessing that John Smith was this week's guest. And thanks again to John Smith of The Swingles for joining me. Even with that five-hour time difference between London and New York, it was great to catch up with him and hear all of the wonderful things that he's been doing. Even if it was getting up at 6.30 a.m. for a 7 a.m. call on a Sunday morning. John, it was well worth it. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for taking part in the podcast this week. Be sure to check out the links in the episode description for resources from this week's episode. Follow the podcast on social media at Aka Ed Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And follow me, Justin Glodish, at Official JGlow on TikTok and Twitter. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We're found on Anchor, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. New episodes are released every Wednesday. You can also now tune into the podcast on Akaville Radio, Akaville.org. If interested in supporting this podcast with a monthly donation, go over to anchor.fm slash podcast to do so. 
And if you ever have any questions about the podcast, suggestions on future guests, please email me at akaedpodcast at gmail.com or leave a voice message on the Anchor website. From the Aka Education Podcast, I'm Justin Glodish. We'll talk soon.